Good morning. Pastor's message this morning is entitled, A Remnant According to Grace. And in chapter 11 of Romans, it's verses, the first five verses of Romans chapter 11. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Know ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, they've dug down thine own altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Amen. Our Father, we ought to always marvel at that word grace, what is unmerited and what you give freely and what you give surprisingly. Lord, when we consider our sinfulness before you, it's amazing that you show grace at all. Lord, and as we see that you still are uh, loving your people whom you foreknew to this day, you have uh, not done away with Israel so as to save those in Israel whom you foreloved, Lord. What grace is that? Lord, it's something that surprises us. It's something that causes the apostle to marvel at the end of this chapter. Lord, you have not cast off your people. I pray that we would remember that. I pray that we would remember that as most of us here are Gentiles who have received of the blessings of the standing that we have because of Israel's rejection. But how much more so shall we see the blessing of the grace of God in their acceptance, Lord? So I pray that as we see Romans 11, that we would see that your saving purposes have no boundaries, Lord. In, in the way that we think about who deserves anything good from your hand is not the way you see things. You give freely. And you give according to your purposes, which are hidden in your secret counsels and which are revealed every day to your people in this earth. And for that, we give you praise for. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle's purpose, I've been arguing in chapters 9 through 11, has been to comfort and to exhort God's people and to instill in us confidence that his word hasn't failed. In the wisdom of God, the reason for this teaching comes in light of the gospel and all the benefits. You realize all of the benefits that we see that comes from God's gift of his son is more than we should ever take for granted by any means, but it's more than we could ever expect. It's more than we could ever comprehend. It's almost unbelievable, the goodness of God that we, that we read of 
in chapters really 1 through the end of chapter 8 in Romans. But the concern for the apostle as he is undergirding those eight chapters of what he's taught concerning the gospel is that when we see those who were defined as God's people in the Old Testament and we see them in most part unbelief now, even now as it was 2,000 years ago, that our faith is not destroyed because we see them in unbelief and therefore them under the wrath of God and us say, well, if that's what happens to God's people, how can we be confident in God? Those who have become God's people through the gospel. You see what Paul's concern is, right? And we've been feeling that and I hope I've been framing that for you. The reason why the apostle defends God, God's faithfulness to his word to Israel now in this, in this chapter and therefore to the church in this chapter is because if God is not faithful to his word ever, we can never fully trust him. We can never fully have confidence that what he says will come to pass. And we can never hope in salvation finally with the kind of hope and kind of assurance, and kind of confidence that he means for us to have and is taught that we ought to have already. It's problematic that Israel is for the most part in unbelief when we read texts like Psalm 94, 14. Israel did not receive the Messiah when he came to them. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, John says, this is the greatest indictment on any people in the history of the world. Do you understand that? Messiah was promised to Israel. He came to them. He went to them first, and they rejected him. And by the end of it, we're crying out, crucify him crucify him. That's the measure of their unbelief. But what is surprising about that unbelief is what God says about them in texts like Psalm 94, 14. For the Lord, Yahweh, will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. And when we read that, we might have this lump in our throat that says, yeah, but they rejected Christ. <laughs> right? Yeah, but they rejected the Messiah. When we read Psalm 94, or Psalm 94, he says it twice there that he will not reject his people. Or Jeremiah 31, after he gives the new covenant, he states no sooner will the moon stop shining in the sky or the sun in the sky or the stars in the heavens or should we sound the depths of the earth or measure the distance of the universe as God will not be faithful to his word to Israel. But they abandon God. They abandon Christ. They are, as it were, in their unbelief, in a state of idolatry. 
But for our sake this morning, one thread the apostle has kept, even while he's argued for God's faithfulness in light of Israel's unbelief through chapters 9 and 10, he has kept a thread together. And this is it, namely that we should not expect that God has rejected his people, Israel, altogether. And here he said in chapter 9, although not all Israel is of Israel, not all are children of promise merely because they are Abraham's offspring. In fact, most of Israel is not of the people of promise. Nevertheless, God chose Isaac and loved Jacob, and he will have mercy on whom he wills even to this day, and he is graciously calling both Jews and Gentiles to an inheritance of glory even to this day. Chapter 10 says that although most of Israel is not saved in accordance with God's word, there is no distinction between Jew or Gentile. For all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. For the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. But when we come to the end of chapter 10, it closes on a very grim note for Israel. And I think this is especially where Paul moves from into chapter 11 when we see the first question he asked in chapter 11. At the end of chapter 10, Israel's failure to hear the gospel and obey it demonstrated their hard-heartedness and ignorance of God and of the scriptures continually. He stretched forth his hand continually to this disobedient and gainsaying or contradictory people. And you read that and you go, well, that's it for them. It must be it for them. But so that the Gentile believers in Rome, as Paul is writing this letter to them, and we ourselves wouldn't get puffed up and not see the saving purposes of God are without repentance, Paul now brings to a close his teaching regarding the past, present, and future status of his people, both of Jews and Gentiles, but especially as it relates to Israel in chapter 11, and God's saving purposes to them. Number one, this morning, God has not rejected his people. God has not rejected his people. Verses 1 and the beginning of verse 2. Paul asks this question, and this is the way he's been dialoguing throughout Romans. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Now, his people here is a loaded term. In the immediate context, it shows himself certainly to be regarding Israel in totality. That is, has God rejected all Israel? Has he done so? Should that not be what we expect when we see their sin against him? Now he asks a pertinent question here, for he said at the end of chapter 9, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Israel stumbled over that stone, therefore they're put to shame. The end of chapter, or the beginning of chapter 10, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God to them, prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. In other words, they're not saved. 
For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Verses 19 through 21, but I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation with a foolish nation. I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. From these texts, we might be tempted to presume that Paul would say, yes, God has rejected his people in totality, for they rejected Christ. But Paul is quick to correct us. By no means, he says. This is the strongest negative in the Greek language, and he's used it often when he is trying to make a point and make it clear as day. And what is his first objection to that question? Has God rejected his people? He says, for I myself am an Israelite. A descendant of Abraham, member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, there are some who take that and just say, Paul is here, just a very, uh, he's a very uh, patriotic Jewish man. And he couldn't ever conceive as a patriotic Jewish man that God would do this. That's not his point. I think that so far misses the point is heaven and, and the temporal realm that we live are too infinitely separated uh, uh, degrees. This temporal realm is giving away to an eternal, and I think that's Paul's concern. It's not just a temporal passion he has for his people. It's that they may be saved. That's his concern. That's his heart for them. So when he presents himself here, he is not presenting himself as a mere uh, patriot. He's presenting himself as an example Paul uses himself as exhibit A so as to say, if God has rejected his people in totality, then I, a descendant of Abraham, even a Benjaminite, a Hebrew of Hebrews, if you will, according to Philippians 3, could not have been saved. What's more, Paul was a persecutor of the church. He was every bit as guilty of the worst criminal crimes of Israel as a whole as anybody in Israel, and he himself is a treasure. He is an ornament of God's grace, as he describes himself. God had singled him out, even as a Jew, unto eternal life. Therefore, Paul's emphatic by no means is an important forceful answer to the question, but he makes it more clear He defines it more clearly who he's speaking of when he says, has God rejected his people? When he says in verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That word foreknew is a paradigm clarifying word. And some argue that Paul uses the term generally to speak of the entirety of Israel as God's old covenant people, even those whom Paul teaches in chapter 9 were not Israel. But I do not believe the text or the context would allow such a view. That word foreknew is so expressive of something particular that God has in his plan of salvation that we cannot limit it to something merely general in this context. In keeping with the context then, both of what has come before 
our text here in verses 1 and 2 and that follows in verses 3 and 5 and 2 to 5, I believe Paul means to distinguish here that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, that is, whom he foreloved, in the broader category of Israel. Therefore, within the people of Israel, God has a plan of salvation for those whom he foreknew. And here's the context that precedes this usage of foreknew. The word is prognosko, the Greek word. Paul only uses it twice in the book of Romans. Do you remember the last time he uses it? He uses it in that monumental promise in Romans chapter 8, 28 through, 20, through 30. He uses it in verse 29. And if you want to go there, I'm going to read all of those verses. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Here's where that word is. For those whom he foreknew. Now, I'm not going to re-preach what I preached on that sermon. But that foreknew there is a lot more than just a prescient or a preceding knowledge that God has of the future. Of these people. Of what they'll do or who they are or what color hair they'll have. This means that God had foreloved these people. That he cared for beforehand for them. This is part of his big picture. His, as we say in theology, his decreative will. That is what he willed to do before anything was made. These people were in his mind to love. He set his affections on them. And how do we know that? We know that in part from what follows in this text. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he called, he called, justified. All this is in the past tense. Those he justified, he glorified. This is eternity to eternity unbreakable God's purposes in saving his people from their sins. This is the word for new. This is the way I think we have to take it in chapter 11, verse 2. And here's why, as we see this in context. Remember what I've been arguing for? Chapters 9 through 11 is Paul is affirming that the word of God is trustworthy because of what he's already says in chapter, what, have, what he's already said in chapters 1 through 8, right? That's our confidence. That's our hope. It's no coincidence then when he used foreknowledge then in chapter 8, verse 30, verse 29, that he uses it again to describe the same saving certainty that he has for his people, even for the remnant of Israel, there will never cease to be a remnant of Israel because God has foreloved those whom he will save out of it. And that is in accordance with the unfailing word of God. That's his point. And his point is this, as it relates back to chapter 8. Because that is the case, we can trust in those that those God has foreknown, they will be glorified. Do you see that? That's the argument he's making here. He's relating that argument to what he's already said concerning our salvation. But now he's relating it to those whom, by all rights, we might consider as lost and without hope, namely Israel, who rejects 
the Messiah in the most part. And he's saying they are not out of God's saving plan. They are not. He has foreknown them. And so he will save them. And the context that follows also demonstrates that this is exactly what Paul means, namely that God has not rejected Israel in totality. He has a people within Israel whom he will save, and so Israel will remain, is his point. Secondly, the remnant according to grace, verse 2, at the end of verse 2. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God, listen to this, how he appeals to God against Israel? That's very important. You know, some have said that Paul appealed to God against Israel. Go to 1 Thessalonians. This is not in my notes, but I just want to read the strength of the language here. That he had said that Israel was under God's condemnation, and some Christians in the history of the church have ran with texts like this and said, see, there's no hope for Israel. Israel has, there's no part in Israel for salvation anymore because of texts like this, who they don't understand what the apostle is saying. But this is strong language, just like Elijah had strong language. But listen to this. Verse 14, for you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Do you know where I'm at, 1 Thessalonians 2, 14? For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So now he's speaking about the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. Well, that's some indictment right there, isn't it? Then he says in 2.16, By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last! Exclamation point. And so people take from that that Paul hates, must have hated the Jews, and there's no salvation for them anymore. And yet Paul, every time he went to every city that he went to, went first to the Jews. Still, he held together two components. That those Jews who were unbelief and remained in it were under the wrath of God and deserved the wrath of God. But here he is saying, eschatologically, in the purposes of God, God has of them a purpose for salvation. Anyway, back to you, Elijah. Romans chapter 11. Elijah appeals to God against Israel. Verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets. Here he's appealing to them using very much similar language as Paul did in 1 Thessalonians 2. They have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. My people. Same kind of language that Paul used in 1 Thessalonians 2. Something we should expect, by the way. Something that Jesus taught us. You are like your fathers, he was telling the Jews, who persecuted the prophets, who killed them. But what is God's reply to him? Here's Paul saying, what's God's reply to Elijah's appeal against Israel? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, Paul is quoting from 1 Kings 19 here, 10 and 14. He quotes Elijah because Elijah says this twice, but he just quotes him in that context. And he's more of a paraphrase than a quote, an actual quote. 
At this time, Ahab was the king of Israel. He was a wicked king. And his evil and his wickedness was only outdone by Jezebel. Do you remember her? I hope none of you think about naming your children Jezebel. If you were to have a girl or even Ahab. They were so wicked that eventually Jezebel in chapter 18 of 1 Kings had the prophets of God killed. She went out trying to murder the true prophets of God. But we know by the end of that chapter, Elijah goes up to Mount Carmel. He calls a standoff, as you will, like a Western movie. Brings out and he says, get all your hired guns, 400 prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of idols, and bring them up to Mount Carmel. And Ahab does it. He's, all right, I'm bringing my hosts and my power, and we're going to go up to Mount Carmel, which is a place of idolatry. Uh, Elijah gave up the home ground, the home territory to go up there. And you know how the story goes. The prophets of Baal, they're cutting themselves and screaming all day long. Oh, maybe Baal's busy. Maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he's eaten. Maybe he's hungry. He's not, he can't hear you. What's going on? And so finally, it's, it's Elijah's turn. After all of this mutilation of their flesh, they can't get Baal to do anything. They can't get any fire to come out of heaven. They can't get their sacrifice consumed. And so now Elijah goes and he says, dig a huge moat around this thing and dump buckets and buckets and gallons and gallons and gallons of water on all of it, everything. And he calls out from heaven and a fire comes and consumes everything. The water licks. I love the way that the King James, it licks up everything, even the water. And the result of that is those priests of Baal and those false idols, worshipers and prophets are killed. And Elijah thinks, we've won the day, haven't we? Chapter 19 comes, and he finds out that there's still a woman. <laughs> there's one woman who is, he's afraid of. After all of that, and I heard a pastor say, some of you men know what that's like <laughs> to, uh, to be afraid of that one woman, and uh, rightfully so. And Elijah flees into the territory because he knows Jezebel has goons after him to kill him. He flees into the wilderness, and he says, let me die. Just let me die out here. Well, God doesn't let him die. He sends an angel and feeds him. So now he's wandering 40 days in the wilderness, and he winds up in a cliff in a mountainside, and he's sitting there in the cliff, and God says, what are you here for? What are you doing here? Why, why are you here? Do you know that I just did that on Mount Carmel? <laughs> and Elijah, that's when Elijah answers, and he says, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I am the last one. Don't you know that, God? <laughs> Don't you know it's just me? What hope is there if there's just me? Right? And God being merciful. He tells him to go out and stand at the edge of this cliff. And there's a strong wind that's so strong it breaks rock. But God wasn't in that wind. And there's an earthquake. And God wasn't in the earthquake. And there's a fire. And God wasn't in the fire. The Bible says God spoke to him in a still, small voice. And this is what he said, among the things that he said. First he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have victory over them. Don't you worry about them. But then this is what he said. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Do you see what's happening there? 
the point that Paul has is the surprise of redemption, the surprise of God's mercy. Israel was in a turmoil of sin. They were in over their heads in sin. There seemed to be no hope for this prophet who was used by God more mightily than anyone else in this time period. He saw no hope, and yet God's secret counsels and God's purposes He reserved a remnant in Israel for himself. And what Paul is saying to us is the measure of sin that you see of Israel, that I speak of of Israel, cannot be how we measure God's purpose for them. God has promised that he will save them. And this is how he's doing it. There will always be a remnant. And how is that coming about? That comes about in verse 5. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen, election, according to election, by grace. You see the surprise going back to what Paul had already said in Romans 9:27 when he quotes Isaiah he says if the lord of hosts had not left us offspring that is left Israel offspring that is if Israel just ceased to be if god had destroyed them once and for all we would have become like Sodom and like Gomorrah there is no more of Sodom and Gomorrah when god judged them and god didn't do that in Israel and to this day beloved When you think about sin city, Tel Aviv in Israel is sin city. It makes San Francisco look like a safe haven for Christians in some ways. It is the capital of sexual sins, maybe in the world, right now. Israel as a nation is a majority, has nothing to do with the gospel, and they are still around. Why? Because there is still a remnant to be saved. We must still tell them to this day, because Paul says, with everything we might presume from what we see of them, there is no hope for the Jewish people. He says, look at me. I'm one of them. God said back then there was a remnant, and even now there is a remnant and there is a Remnant according to grace. This is why Paul begins the letter. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. This is why Jesus, when he commissioned us, he didn't say, go to every people but the Jews, He said, go to every nation, make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is not finished with Israel, even to this day, for among them he has his people. And this is a great admonishment for our faith. This insignificant people, Israel, smallest little detail on a map, if you look at an atlas, Still to this day, we can discern who they are almost amongst every people group of the world. We can tell, where are the Jews in this particular city? 
Uh, Brother Tim was telling me that in Mexico City, they have a huge consortment of Jewish people. It just, you can just go almost everywhere. My dad used to tell me in his travels, because he worked with an American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, you can just go to New York City. There's a group of Jewish people. There's a, this insignificant people is still signified in the world. Why? Why? And we have to say, finally, because God will save his people from them. Do you have in your heart, then, the passion that Paul had in the beginning of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 9? Brothers, my heart and my desire for Israel, my heart's desire for them is that they might be saved. Are you praying for their salvation? Are we going to the ends of the world still, meaning to the Jew and the Greek, saying for the, there is no distinction between you when it comes to who is acceptable before God? For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the Lord is Jesus. I think in part the reason why the apostle is going to the lengths that he goes to in chapter 11 especially is to teach us to have a conscious conscience about the salvation of Israel, about the salvation of those that God has chosen to save from them. We need to have that in our minds. We need to have a passion for that in our hearts. It needs to be part of our prayer to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the world as you have revealed it to be. Lord, we would not have guessed this, just as we would not have guessed that you would save us, a people who are not a people, that you would make us a nation who were not a nation, your people, part of your people and part of your holy nation, as Peter says. So we would not have expected that a people that had been so resistant and so hard and so regular in their dismissal and their disobedience and their sin and the severity of it to even reject the Son, that you would not in totality destroy them. But you have not so as to save from them those whom you foreknew. As you promise, as we'll see, to the fathers. And so I pray that you'd be glorified, Lord, in giving us a heart to bring this good news to all the nations, including to Israel, including to the Jewish people, including to those who are seemingly without hope, as we were, because they're without Christ, and therefore without God in the world. I pray that we would be considerate of your greatness and marvel at it in your plan of salvation as you revealed it. In Jesus' name, amen.